right, everybody, welcome, welcome here to show 125 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Mijinskis, your host here from Eastern Europe, staying strong next to the great people of Ukraine, uh, joined here today by my co-host, as always, Alec Harris from Eastern US and Halo Privacy. Alec, how's it going? Yeah, hey, Matthew, cheers to that sentiment. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, uh, as we've done in recent shows, let's... Uh, Let's let's maybe focus back on Bitcoin and uh, you know more apolitical things here. Uh, very happy to introduce our special guest today, uh, Brian Bishop. Brian is a, a Bitcoin Core contributor, as he has uh, written to me. Fortunate enough to receive one of the original emails from Satoshi Nakamoto in January two thousand nine, uh, and he writes in his young foolishness. He summarily concluded that it was yet another P two P piece of crap. It wasn't until 2013 that he would take a serious look at it. He uh, has been a software engineer with Ledger X, which was the first U.S. federally regulated derivatives Bitcoin exchange uh, since then acquired in 2021 and is now FTX U.S. Derivatives, where he serves on the board. He has consulted many in the Bitcoin space. He co-founded Custodia Bank, which was previously Avanti Bank and Trust in 2020 and served as CTO for two years. He has also uh, informs us, and I, and I can absolutely attest to it, uh, seeing him uh, actively at the Honey Badger, very impressively largely served uh, a lot of time as a scribe for Bitcoin technical conferences. Uh, if you haven't seen him in action, please do check it out. Uh, uh, btctranscripts.com, uh, chronicling the history of Bitcoin development. Brian is also focused outside of crypto on biotech and genetics, such as molecular data recording and human embryogenetic engineering. I understand he has an interest in transhumanism. Maybe we'll touch on that. Uh, as well, he has recently launched a new kind of cryptocurrency called WebCash. So having said all that, very happy to welcome him to the show. Brian, thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited today. Great, great, yeah. Um, so much to talk about. I've really always enjoyed uh, hearing you speak at conferences. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a high level technical person, you know, not, not so technically oriented into the weeds, but I always find that your uh, presentations really, really clarify any questions uh, that I have on a certain topic. So really, really looking forward to it as well. One thing I wanted to ask just to start off the bat, What's the role of a Bitcoin maintainer these days in your perspective? Uh, you know, in recent years, obviously we've had a few uh, people step down, high profile people perhaps step down. Uh, Schnelli cited legal risks, in fact. Uh, Vanderland stepped back a little bit before him. What's the role of a Bitcoin maintainer uh, these days? You know, I, I think the role hasn't really changed that much. But as you're pointing out, though, there has been some shift in the prevailing sentiment about how to go about doing Bitcoin development. I am not sure, but I am hopeful that some of these developers that have publicly stepped down will uh, come back or decide to contribute in other ways. You know, it's uh, really interesting. Here, even here in Austin, I uh, recently, through South By and all the surrounding events, met some Bitcoin developers that I hadn't met before who live here in Austin, and they did not give me their name intentionally. They don't give anyone their name. They actually go mm. by pseudonyms, even in public, you know, in person. Mm. And part of this is because of the concerns about being publicly associated as a Bitcoin developer in a, in a legal environment where, uh, you know, there, there is this uh, threat, you know, attacking Bitcoin developers. And, 
you know, part of what makes it even more difficult is that, you know, Bitcoin developers are not paid by the Bitcoin protocol. And just because you're a Bitcoin developer doesn't mean that you necessarily have an unlimited pot of Bitcoin to go and defend yourself against uh, these abuses of the judicial system. So it's really interesting. And I think, I think uh, not, anonymity is a, is a good idea. It's an interesting one to explore. Uh, I clearly have not taken that path, but um, I, I do encourage people to, to seriously consider it, though. So you mentioned it hasn't really changed. And I totally take your point on the anonymity. I think that would be very interesting if that could uh, increase and continue. Is it just legal risks maybe uh, that would be kind of the main problem of a Bitcoin maintainer being uh, out in the open or are there other like political risks? Uh, I don't know, safety risk or anything or maybe it's just all of the above? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it depends on your threat model. Yeah, there are safety risks. Um, you know, Bitcoin developers get recognized everywhere, you know, and it is a concern. Um, you know, and this goes, this applies to Bitcoiners as well, not just Bitcoin developers working on Bitcoin Core, but I mean, don't tell people you have Bitcoin. Don't, don't do it. You know, it, it can't really help you to say that. Uh, once people know that you have Bitcoin, you know, angry people eventually might try to take it from you, sometimes by force. So... Anyway, it's certainly a concern. And, um, you know, for some people, the answer is, well, you know, I don't want to have custody of my Bitcoin. So I'm going to use like a, a regulated institution. Now, I'm not saying everyone should do that. I'm just saying some people make that assessment and they determine that that is the optimal way to, to handle their personal security. So there's the challenge of, and I think the three of us probably already agree on this, but if you export the security of your bearer asset, whether it's Bitcoin or something else, uh, you take some third-party risk that's largely unknown. And so, you know, the ledger hack was a really obvious example, but more recently, this HubSpot hack, where 30 or so, you know, large crypto institutions were involved and clearly client data, including some client email and phone and addresses came out. And so, um, I don't know, I think uh, I get it, right? Because some people don't have the time or the wherewithal to pursue self-custody. But the the risks are there either way. And I don't know, I prefer to make my own mistake if it's going to be someone making a mistake. Um, but I mean, wh where are you on that, Brian? You know, I, I personally agree more with you. Um, but again, it's not for everyone. So one one interesting thing that I've seen in different regulated institutions in this space, especially those that have more of a, a Bitcoiner uh, background, is that personally identifiable information is actually treated as like a toxic asset. It's like nuclear waste. You don't really want to have it. You're required to under the law, mm -hmm. but to the extent possible, get rid of that, you know? And of course we should be advocating to our lawmakers and everything that, you know, we should, no one should be required to hold that data or collect it really because it's, it's you know, it's toxic and it's a, it's a, it's a target for hackers and, and everything. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just bad to have that kind of data laying around. Well, and especially where, uh, and this is more on the institution side and especially in regulated, the regulated world, but uh, the requirement is to not only collect that, but to verify it. Uh, and so collecting it allows the user to decide what info they're going to give, whether it's, you know, alias and th throw away or, or true. Um, but when it's verified, you know, the onus is on you to give true information if you want to participate in whatever that service is. Uh, and then you really open yourself up to exactly these third-party risks. 
Uh, and I'm sure you've seen that, you know, in your past. Uh, and I haven't seen a great elegant solution for it yet, although the, t- the tools probably exist. You know, I saw a really interesting case recently that was brought to my attention of someone who uh, went to a, a crypto financial institution, got KYC, and then they come back like a year or two years later to continue using the platform. And it turns out that in that time, the institution switched KYC providers to someone else. And upon doing due diligence, you know, this user realized that they didn't want their personally identifiable information being transmitted to this particular KYC provider. You know, maybe maybe there was something about the previous one they liked and something about this new one that they didn't like. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I mean, once your data is out there, you know, it's out there. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and some of that information is large or is semi-permanent, right? If you're dealing with home addresses, it's non-trivial. To, to mitigate that once it's out. Um, so, and I, I'd argue we have it better in the US than in other parts of the world too, where at least there is some things you can do around that in the US versus um, you know, what I've seen of attempts at some of this home address privacy in Europe is, is much harder. I mean, I don't know, Matthew, have you, have you seen successful ways to do it there? I'm not aware. It is much harder as we've talked about on the show before, but um, you know, as far as doing it with a company in Eastern Europe, I know that that would be very difficult. If not, I mean, it might be possible, but it would be very difficult and very expensive. You know, people talk a lot about the unbanked and part of the problem and part of the reason why they're unbanked in some cases because there's no real KYC infrastructure um, and people like, you know, feel sorry about this situation. But Maybe one perspective is that it's actually good. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe it's great that we have yeah. like a population of people that, you know, aren't really in the regime of KYC and you know, maybe maybe that's okay. Yeah, it's a long-term goal obviously for them to, you know, build up their own financial freedom. I mean, it's like I, I quote it all the time and I, I like Alex uh, Gladstein's from the Human Rights Foundation's latest book, Check Your Check Your Financial Privilege because I mean, we got two to two and a half billion people in the world that still don't have uh, clean water and or sanitation. And um, you know, they, they don't have bank accounts either for sure, nor are they going to take their non-existent birth certificate you know, down to their non-existent JP Morgan Chase branch. So yeah, I totally agree from that side. It's like, I think quite optimistic long-term. It's just, God, from the West, from the Western perspective, you see like, you know, just regulation upon regulation. And I just saw whether it's financial privacy, KYC, it's in Europe here, it's, you know, in, environmentally friendliness uh, regulations. And uh, the Econ- Economics Committee did reject that uh, a couple of weeks ago, an amendment to actually try to ban proof of work. But now there's even more coming in the fray, of course, last minute. Um, same topic, back to the KYC, back to, you know, if you send to a, your own wallet or you send to a non-custodial wallet directly from an exchange, exchange needs to verify where you sent those funds to. I mean, it's just, it just keeps growing and growing and growing, just this Leviathan, and it's very depressing. Although I know that, you know, we still have Bitcoin, they're not going to take our coins, but it's just, it's kind of depressing in the short run. Well, I am a fan of regulatory reform. I think it needs to be easier to start and run businesses. At the same time, though, I'm not saying it should necessarily be a free-for-all. Uh, I think laws and enforcement against fraud are, is very important. And, and that's you know, one way that this industry and the market could conduct itself. But the, the barriers of regulation just really substantially increase costs for operating a business. 
I want to go into just revisiting from your bio. You receive an email from Satoshi in January 2009. So can you kind of tell that story? How did he reach out to you? What was the context? And then it sounds like you were somewhat dismissive of it. So um, what was what were you thinking at the time? And then when did you come back to it and say, huh, that maybe there's something there? Well, so at the time, I was registered on a mailing list called the Peer to Peer Foundation, which was run by Michelle Bowens. And I, I was there, you know, uh, possibly as early as like 2007, 2008. And it, it was just an interesting uh, little discussion group talking about alternative ways of uh, organizing intellectual property and intellectual labor around open source software and things like that. And you know the the period around two thousand eight was quite interesting from a from a uh, cryptocurrency and you know new currency perspective because the financial crisis uh, encouraged a whole bunch of people to go and explore alternative forms of currency and so there were a lot of proposals floating around on the internet um, you know people talk about B gold for example or Wei Dai's version or Nick Zabo's version and uh, Bit Gold and stuff like that. Um, but there were, there were actually a lot of different proposals floating around. Um, some people might remember um, Ripple was around before Bitcoin. Now, of course, it wasn't the Ripple you all know today. And today it's been renamed to Rumple, referring to the original idea that Ryan Fogger had. Um, so there were all these ideas floating around. Um, it was sort of an alternative currency renaissance. And the Peer to Peer Foundation mailing list um, was showing a lot of them. And uh, a lot of them were not that smart of an idea. They just, you know, a lot of them weren't even really technical. They were like more of a, like a social manifesto or something. And I hated it. I hated it. And so when I got this email from Satoshi through this mailing list, I thought it was more of the same. And I looked at it briefly and I was like, this, this seems dumb. This is a, yet another peer-to-peer -peer currency that's baseless and you know, doesn't, doesn't make any technological sense. And for that reason, it's a piece of crap. Um, Another reason that I dismissed it at the time, uh, to my recollection, is that it only ran on Microsoft Windows. And to me, you know, I was 19 years old at the time, and I was thinking, you can't have a financial revolution if your software only runs on Microsoft Windows. Now, it turns out that uh, Bitcoin fixed that eventually, uh, so that was not a limiting factor. And yeah, in, in 2013, 2014, I started getting more involved, and it actually started with me um, running to the Bitcoin developers once, when I saw this scam online related to a storage protocol that was making just outrageous claims about, about how it worked and how the cryptography worked or how the protocol worked. And I was just like, this can't be true. I go to the Bitcoin developers for some reason. And I said, hey, you guys know about this scam? They kind of just kind of like laughed at me and they're like, yeah, welcome to the club, buddy. It's uh, happening everywhere. Um, and I started talking with them and just watching them, seeing what they were doing on GitHub and stuff. And, um, well, at the time it was on SourceForge, really. But anyway, um, and uh, yeah, from there, I, you know, I got sucked into it. And for me, I realized that the developers were my kind of people. And that's actually what got me into Bitcoin is I was like, these are my people and I understand them. And I started to understand Bitcoin on a very technical level. And uh, that's how I got into Bitcoin. And when you say one of the original emails that was, you were on the mailing list? Yeah, so there were two mailing lists that Satoshi announced to. One was uh, yeah. Harry Metzger's um, cryptography mailing list, which is still running to this day. And the other was Michelle Bowen's 
uh, peer-to-peer foundation mailing list, which is also still running to this day. It's incredible reading back. I mean, obviously there's a lot, I mean, so much has been changed and so much has been, you know, argued about and, uh, but it's incredible to see some of the statements, uh, the early statements from those emails obviously would encourage people to go to, you know, Nakamoto Institute or wherever online you can find a lot of his old original emails. Very, very, very interesting to, uh, to read through. I did have one more still with kind of the maintainer role, uh, developer role, uh, and how things are changing with Bitcoin today, how they're upgrading. We had, we spoke with uh, Jameson Lopp on our last episode, asking the same question about, you know, there was such this, this overhang sort of or hangover, I guess, from the, you know, from the scaling wars post SegWit, post 2017, people were just kind of nervous to get back into it and talk upgrading. This new signaling mechanism was adopted. There was a variety of them uh, that were proposed. What's your take on the way that Bitcoin is kind of developing, uh, I guess really just from the scaling wars and then to today, uh, you know, it's a long time coming to get the taproot activation upgrade. You know, Jameson's take, just to, just one more point to it, Jameson's take was he thought that there was such a hangover and people were trying to be so careful and not step on any toes that he thought they were we're being maybe a little bit too cautious, but what are your thoughts? You know, for, for me personally, I, I'm in agreement with him about the abundance of caution. I think that that is definitely the case. And for that reason, things have been a little more slow than perhaps I would like. Um, however, you know, in terms of what I would recommend or even suggest though, I do think a conservative approach is appropriate. Um, there are many reasons not to go full speed. Um, so, the interesting question, though, is, you know, what will be the next soft fork? What will be the next upgrade? I think there will be one, uh, but there are questions like, you know, how fast can the community get it done? Uh, will it get done at all? You know, some people talk about ossification, which is a possibility. You know, at some point, maybe the Bitcoin protocol can't be changed anymore. I hope that's not the case, but it's a possibility. Yeah, I remember people talking about ossification even before SegWit. So certainly uh, there's a lot of views, a lot of views out there. One more thing is, is that a lot of people talk about a foot gun with respect to, um, you know, adding like, for example, op check template verify. There may be reasons to oppose adding op check, check template verify into the protocol, but I don't think that giving people a, a foot gun to, you know, to shoot themselves in the foot with is necessarily the reason not to do it. There might be other reasons, but, you know, if you do not want to use a new, uh, aspect of the Bitcoin protocol, you don't have to. And so I, I just don't see that as a, as a reasonable uh, argument to prevent or to convince people not to go forward with it. What do you think about the prospects and you know the arc on this might be long for increased on-chain privacy in Bitcoin? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Increased privacy on-chain on Bitcoin. Um, well, I guess we're going to rely on Adam Gibson and Chris Belcher, essentially. I guess that's the plan. Uh, you know, they're going to continue writing software, and you know, the recent uh, teleport proposal and their work on CoinJoin, CoinSwap, and everything, I think, uh, goes a long way towards enhancing on-chain privacy. I don't necessarily think that there will be a, a protocol-level like fork-related changes adding more privacy anytime soon. I mean, we just got one with Taproot, but um, you know, maybe maybe the next one is you know more about functionality or something about expanding functionality, covenants, something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, part of me thinks that Bitcoin has so the 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 cryptocurrency ecosystem gets a lot of regulatory scrutiny, but uh, at the kind of like core level, Bitcoin isn't. No one is saying, "Hey, we should." Well, I take that back. This whole thing in the Europe in Europe about proof of work is an example of you know just directly regulating the protocol itself. But um, I, I still think, by and large. Bitcoin, people are just accept that Bitcoin exists and, and will continue to exist and doesn't need to be regulated away. But I think if you if you too soon try to make it look like uh, it is, in fact, designed to not be traced and surveilled, even though you know I would vote for that, like I think that's a good thing. It's probably something to be done, you know, well after Bitcoin is truly beyond the incumbent. Or, or in the incumbency in, in the financial system. I don't know, but it might be a while. I agree. I think that uh, Bitcoin is already quite ingrained. Uh, there's more room to grow. But yeah, I mean, I remember early on with Satoshi and <laughs> when uh, Gavin uh, went to talk with a certain uh, government agency and Satoshi was like, or, or no, was it the WikiLeaks one? And he was like, this is too soon, you know, way too soon to get this level of attention. You know, yeah, please, please don't. Yeah, it was WikiLeaks. That's right. But of course, after he mentioned the other one you're speaking of, I, I believe that was, maybe he just sent one more message after that, but I think he, he went away pretty much after that. Privacy remains an interesting challenge. Alec is, uh, takes the lion's share of the, uh, the OPSEC on our show for that and, and trying to help you know, listeners, what other things do you find interesting uh, lately, I guess, with, um, you know, some tools to use Bitcoin and also just, you know, for the average person, we have a, a mix of users here and education, uh, people that are educated on the, on the protocol here. You know, if someone's new and trying to get into Bitcoin, I remember you saying uh, at one point, it's probably more likely to lose the keys from yourself than it is to lose them, from, you know, to a hacker or even a thief at this point. Oh, that's certain. That's certainly true. Well, I mean, two things I've been looking at recently uh, that I could throw out there. One is Umbral for running a personal node. I think that's interesting. And then the other is, of course, uh, BTC Pay Server is uh, still going strong. BTC Pay Server using your own node or just uh, using a hosted node? I mean, really, either way. I mean, for a business that is interested in exploring alternative forms of payments and, you know, maybe not <laughs> taking credit card anymore. Um, you know, even using the hosted BTC pay version is still a step in the right direction. Hey, just a quick break to remind you that this show is sponsored by HODL HODL. HODL HODL is the fastest and most secure way to buy or sell Bitcoin without verification and with the lowest fees on the market. Trade in any country in the world for any payment method and any currency. So go ahead and sign up with the link hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices and get a discounted trading fee forever. Hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices when you sign up. You won't regret it. Uh, thanks again to Max, Roma, and everybody over at Hoddle Hoddle for the support. And uh, a reminder, they also organize the very well-run and fantastic Baltic Honey Badger Bitcoin Conference every fall in Riga. So head on over to hoddlehoddle.com slash join slash crypto voices. Thanks again, and back to the show. Yeah, so uh, just to pivot topics a little bit, Brian, you very recently 
uh, announced the, I guess, release of WebCache and uh, would love, maybe just for the listeners, can you give a little primer on that project? Yeah, of course. So WebCache is an experiment that I started to kind of scratch an itch and really distill all the concepts that you know, I learned from Bitcoin and really ask questions about what is required, what is not required to run a virtual currency. And for me, the answers um, are kind of interesting. And my goals were, you know, what is the most simple version we could create of, a, of an online virtual currency for payments? And my answer is WebCash. The way WebCash works is that it is a proof of work mined um, currency. There is a semi-trusted central server and the server is responsible for double spin prevention. Uh, wallets connect to the server to ask the server, hey, has this been double spent? But they do not send webcache to other users through the server. Instead, the way that you send webcache is by copy pasting a, a, the webcache and sending it to whoever you're paying by any protocol or any means, whether it's secure email, secure chat, or some other method to make a payment to someone. And that is how you send it. From a Bitcoin perspective, it's a little bit like uh, sending around a Bitcoin private key, right? Instead of sending Bitcoin, you're sending the private key directly to them. And then it's their job to uh, confirm with the system that it hasn't already been spent and that there's still you know, coin associated with it. So that's that's at a high level what WebCash is. Was that the tweet storm? Was that the official announcement? Is that where you... Yeah, that, I recently announced it on Twitter, yeah. So we'll get that in the, in the show notes, but... Uh, you talk about the scalability or the ability to uh, handle a large volume of transactions. Can, can you get into how? Oh, sure. So there's, there's really two ways here. Um, one is the observation that if the mechanism of sending webcash to someone is just copy-pasting or scanning a QR code from their phone or something like that, then uh, uh, you're not really uh, limited by a blockchain, really. You could just send it as much as you want without even contacting the server. Now, that's kind of like using zero confirmation transactions in Bitcoin. It's not necessarily recommended, but if you trust the, the sender or the recipient trusts the sender, then fine, they can, they can get away with that. The other aspect though, the scalability is that, again, there is no blockchain here. And so the central server scales as a function of a central server. You know, This is something that uh, the, the tech industry has figured out for quite a while with scaling web services. And so, you know, I can keep throwing more hardware at it. I can update the software. I can, you know, use better database technology and really get a lot of scale here. Just to back up a little, and um, I'll add this because you graciously, you know, allowed me to demo it with you and sent me some web cache, which I'm sure I'll retire on later. But the uh, the fact that you transmit the value out of band is really interesting to me, uh, and so. The, one of the novelties and also maybe challenges in certain respects of a traditional blockchain is that you do have a transaction and in most ledgers that that's a transaction that's public and that you can look up and is immutable. Uh, and that's cool. But in the webcache world, you know, I can choose my mechanism of transit however I want, whether it's you know mailing it to you on a piece of paper or a signal or whatever, uh, and decide how we exchange that value. And so for a sophisticated set of counterparties, you can be very clever in how you transmit value, which I think is super interesting. Uh, but 
much like cash, right? This would be pretty easy to lose if you aren't caring for it the way you would your cash in your wallet, right? So what what made you decide to go down that path? Because um, it clearly has some advantages and some disadvantages. You know, one of the reasons I went down this path was because I was looking at eCash. And eCash was this historical uh, virtual currency proposal by David Chom and others, you know, 1980s and even earlier, uh, about how to do an electronic form of money. And as part of that, there's uh, this proposal of using like a blinded token. And this was for privacy reasons and everything so that the server wouldn't be able to tell who is paying whom and stuff like that. And I was looking at that and, you know, I was really trying to distill it down to the simplest version. And that's really like a serial number. It doesn't even have to be blinded, no fancy math, just uniquely identifying the web cache. And that's how you send it. Another aspect of it though, was that the reason I, I designed it to be out of band is because I actually think that if you were able to send web cache through the server to someone else, that the regulatory and legal posture of the server would change dramatically. Uh, as soon as you add accounts or customers, you got to do KYC. You got to do all this stuff. Um, and so for that reason, you know, users are not customers of this service. Um, and you send it out of band. And I think that that will uh, be one of the ways that WebCache can win, even though it's somewhat centralized. And that's my follow-up, right? So can you explain the server infrastructure? Can anyone uh, host a WebCache server? How does that work? Yeah, so a few things. Uh, you mentioned data a moment ago. Um, there is some privacy at the moment, merely because I have not yet published the database. But like a blockchain, I could publish the records of what has happened so far. I have not done that yet, but it, it is a possibility that I am warning people about that I might choose to do that at some point. I think it would be a good idea. And to the second part of your question with regards to the server infrastructure, Right now, I have not open sourced the backend, but uh, the rest of the software, like the clients and the libraries, are open source. And I'm thinking about open sourcing the backend. And however, I, I'm actually not under the illusion that it would be difficult to replicate what I've done here with the webcache server. It's actually, I mean, it's really simple. I mean, it does not have that much functionality. You know, you you can go to the server and say, "Hey, I want to check for double spending pr protection. I want to resecure my webcache." I want to know what the current mining difficulty is. And here's my mining report. You know, that's really like what four functions or something that the server is doing. And so, you know, I fully expect uh, a lot of copycats actually. And, you know, based off of the discussion in the Discord channel from, from the webcast users, it sounds like some would be interested in doing a copycat with the Chamian blinding or even confidential transactions added back in for the privacy. And, uh, you know, I, I would really like to see that experiment, but at the same time, I've told the users like, look, I'm not going to die on the, on the cross for your privacy. So, uh, you know, I, I look forward to seeing those. I look forward to seeing, you know, it tested in the world to see whether such a system could survive. But in WebCache, those privacy features are not enabled. Was it for verifying the, you know, total amount of coins that you said you wouldn't want to die on the cross for privacy or what was the... What was the decision not to have it? No, in terms of dying on the cross for privacy, I mean, if law enforcement comes knocking, you know, I mean, I'm a person, you know, it's an entity, you know, there, there's someone there. And with Bitcoin, 
you know, it's, it's sort of this headless hydra or whatever, chop off one head and a thousand more grow and you don't really know who to go to. But in the centralized model, that's very different. Um, and so anyway, yeah, that's why I said not dying on the cross for your privacy. If it's a centralized server that uh, protects against the double spend and whatnot, are you worried then that that puts you at risk for some litigation, as you said, you know, because you're a real person and people, you know, law enforcement could come knocking on your door? You know, I'm not, I'm not too concerned. Um, one thing to note is that there is a terms of service that users agree to before using uh, the system. And every single request to the server actually has to include that agreement to the terms of service. And so we'll see, uh, we'll see how that goes. But I mean, I, I clearly outline a lot of the risks and I encourage everyone to go read it. Um, you know, it's not, it's not dense legalese, you know, it's uh, written so that people can read it. And I outline a lot of the risks and disclosure. I mean, this is a bearer asset, you know, use it at your own risk. You're responsible for storing it. And if you lose it, you know, if someone steals it, you know, that's on you. Uh, all sorts of things like that. What would an aspirational adoption curve look like here? Uh, people start using it peer-to-peer. C- could you envision merchant adoption? W- what would you like to see grow out of this? I think where WebCash really shines is as a payment mechanism. It's designed to be an absurdly simple method of doing payments. And what I keep imagining in my head is I would love to use WebCash when I'm ordering pizza. I want to order pizza, go online, get a form. I want to type in my address. And then I want to type in the WebCash. I don't want to have to type in a credit card. I don't want to wait for a transaction on the, on the blockchain. I just want to hand over my WebCash and say, give me some pizza. I think that'd be a really cool use case. So I do see it as mainly merchant and adoption and commerce on the internet. What is the on or off ramp into other currencies? Well, um, right now, uh, almost none, but I do see a few users uh, talking in the Discord trading for dollars. And I assume they're sending dollars through, like, I don't know, like Venmo or something, you know, out of band again. Um, and I don't see those because, you know, that's, that's private. You know, that's just between two individuals, really. Um, all that the server sees is, you know, someone goes and replaces some webcache and says, hey, re-secure my, this webcache. And, you know, that might be a purchase or it might just be someone moving it between their own wallet. You know, some people have like a hot wallet on their phone and then a cold storage wallet where they have the bulk of their webcache, that sort of thing. And it is super, super simple and easy to use, uh, you know, having done all of a, a small test with you. Um, but it, it, it's not complicated. And I, you know, I think I, I said this a few minutes ago, right? But it, it it really reminds me of the sort of ephemerality of cash. Like if you're holding a, a five dollar bill and the wind blows and it kind of blows off, that's it, right? Here, you either have it in your hands or you don't, uh, and that's the feeling I get from web cash. Like there, I don't sense there's any way to reclaim it or to uh, you know email support or something. It's it's yours if you make a mistake. Sure, then you lost it, but uh, it is truly a bearer asset, a digital bearer asset in every sense, which is cool. So kudos on the launch. I've been getting lots of fantastic feedback from users. People are having fun with this. They they like it. They're like, oh, this is like early days of Bitcoin. This is great. You know, people are having fun with mining. Everyone loves mining. You know, right now you can still mine on your laptop, as far as I know. Um, eventually, the difficulty will probably increase as more people will start mining. But um, yeah, you can still mine on your laptop and people are having a blast with that. Uh, a few developers have commented to me, you know, they've made a few different uh, tools. One person made a faucet 
I think it was his first programming project ever. He made a webcache faucet. It's at webcachefaucet.org. Um, the official webcache site is webcache.org. And another person made a little uh, uh, a dice game, a gambling game, where you put in your webcache and you know you gamble and you either lose some webcache or you get some webcache back. And the developers that have been working on this have been telling me that they really like it. They think it is absurdly simple and it's just so fresh compared to the difficulties of, <laughs> yeah, a few people have mentioned the difficulties of using lightning, for example. And, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe this could be how webcache gets adopted. It's through developers just really enjoying using this. And then, you know, it's fast payments. I mean, maybe that's what the internet is missing. Have you seen any criticisms that you find valid or, you know, obviously the Bitcoin community is, is, uh, you know, quite emotive, uh, on, on certain topics. And, uh, I can imagine that there are plenty that maybe don't see the use cases or have you seen valid criticisms yet from Bitcoiners or anybody, or are they just not getting the use cases you're proposing? Well, I should start by saying that I'm still a Bitcoiner. I still love Bitcoin. I have Bitcoin, you know, uh, I've been on the record saying that. And, you know, some of the criticism is really more around, you know, what's the threat model? Some users really want a decentralized cryptocurrency. They want to run their own node. They want to transact and have this uh, sovereignty of sorts enforced by the protocol and everything. And uh, Bitcoin is absolutely stellar at that. The criticism that I receive is mainly from people who are more interested in Bitcoin, who want that. And the thing of it is, is that it's not necessarily for everyone. Not everyone understands or even wants decentralization to that level, where you have that strong personal responsibility of personally verifying software and, and what you're doing with your, with your Bitcoin. Um, that's not for everyone. And some users don't even understand, you know, there are all kinds of people that use central trusted services every single day. You know, this is a whole different world. And Webcash is not competing with Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin will always be better at being Bitcoin. Webcash is just, you know, this other payment experiment, you know, with a radically different design. You have a lot of coders uh, in the developed world thinking a lot about, you know, their own use cases, sometimes making things too complex, maybe not. But is it? Mostly probably for people in like the Western world at this point, uh, just people like you said, if they just want to order a pizza or is, I don't know, is there any kind of back to what Alec was saying before, like, is there any on or off ramps that you can think that might be more interesting for this uh, webcache compared to Bitcoin, like in the developing world? I think it's possible to use webcache in the developing world. I haven't really thought about it that much, uh, but I am looking forward to seeing users experiment with it. I don't, I don't really know. Um, one possible issue is that in order to use webcache securely, you have to use a wallet and your wallet has to talk to the central server to ask, hey, has this been double spent? And maybe in some places, internet access would be difficult. Uh, however, that's also true of Bitcoin though, because you have to have the blockchain and you have to ask, has this been double spent or have I really received the transaction? And there are solutions for the developing world for Bitcoin. You know, there's the, the Blockstream satellite solution, right? which is broadcasting blocks pretty much globally. And for 50 or 100 bucks, you can set up a little satellite dish and get all that data. Now, we don't have that for webcast yet. I mean, you launched it on March 15th, so I don't know why you don't have a satellite network. 
supporting it. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a mark of shame against me. Yeah. I should have a whole fleet of satellites, I know. We're, we're actually not going to publish this podcast. No, no we don't, you don't have satellite support. It is uh, definitely a uh, rapidly evolving world with technology and uh, satellites, as you mentioned. So um, yeah, things are just crazy. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to think back like from when Bitcoin was founded uh, you know, most people were just, you know, nodes were users, were miners, you know, everybody just using their laptop. You know, it's obviously changed now. Uh, I think about the regulatory environment when Bitcoin was founded, everything is changed now. And unfortunately, you just keep, see more, in my opinion, like ridiculous news and statements every day from, uh, from politicians. And yeah, things are just compounding fairly quickly. It's fairly obvious. There's a lot of other issues well outside of cryptocurrency that people are uh, talking about. I mean, hell, even in my part of the world, some people get very emotive on Ukraine in many different ways. I mean, I'm biased for sure because of my family history, but we had it with the Arab Spring uh, 10 years ago. But I mean, this for sure is the largest scale war with the largest population. And on top of the fact that it's in Europe, uh, that is being basically broadcast to the world every moment, whether on Twitter or elsewhere. And certainly there's a lot of deep fakes with that as well. So it's very challenging to everybody to sort of navigate. But I guess what I'm trying to tee up is sort of a general question because I know that you're interested in it. It obviously has, you know, like a technological, biological uh, <laughs> element to it as well. Yeah, what's your view with all the transhumanism stuff? I think that's a very interesting topic. I have no idea where your uh, interests lie there, but I do understand that it has a lot to do with you know compounding and society is changing very fast. Looking back, even over like the ten years that I've been following Bitcoin, it's just vastly different. I think most people would agree. Uh, maybe people around our age, just everything is changed so much in 10 years and let alone if you talk about you know 10 years before that before that so yeah it's a long-winded way of trying to maybe pivot into this topic that i know interests you well let me offer you a quick bridge here which is that uh actually from the transhumanist uh, side of things there's actually a, a lot of early bitcoin is tied to transhumanism extropianism and these other concepts of technological progress in particular i'd point out to hal finney you know, how Finney was involved in those communities uh, for quite a while, you know, for probably as long as he was involved in the cryptography communities. And, um, you know, actually right now, how Finney is stored at Alcor, you know, being preserved with the possibility of maybe one day uh, reviving him. Um, Wei Dai, Nick Zabo, uh, there, there are just so many names. I mean, heck, even Ralph Merkel, you know, uh, Ralph Merkel was involved in that community as well, or still is to some extent. Um, so it's kind of interesting that, you know, a group of people on the internet interested in, you know, libertarianism, and, uh, human rights, technological progress, and, you know, digital currency would be so heavily involved in the early days of Bitcoin. And so there must be something to it, you know, and, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Joseph Jackson, likes to point out that Bitcoin uh, allows for long-term thinking. Because when you have a scarce asset that you're certain will continue to be scarce, you can suddenly pivot your investments. You, know, you don't have to go sh chase yield and chase gains and stuff like that. Um, and so when you get this longer term perspective, you're able to make technological investments in, in much bigger projects, you know, maybe stuff like longevity, 
um, you know, human enhancement projects, uh, nootropics, smart drugs, rather, uh, all sorts of things. About compounding, because I love that topic. I talk about it a lot with uh, monetary-based research that I do, and I think a lot of people just don't understand the power of compounding. You kind of mentioned something that, again, piqued my interest there. Like, yeah, you have a longer-term horizon. You might not need to take as many uh, gambles or risks as far as investments that people think they need to take today, especially in the stock market. Is there a timeline? Like, are people projecting where things might sort of take off? I know Ray Kurzweil has this sort of singularity idea, which last I remember was somewhere in like the late 2030s. Are you interested in any of those prognoses? Not really. I think it's really hard to predict the future. I'm, I'm more of a believer that the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Yeah. And with regards to com- compounding uh, returns, you know, one of the things I like to say about, you know, smart drugs, nootropics, you know, the, the concept is that maybe we can make a drug that you take it and you get smarter. Well, you know, my definition of the minimum viable version of a smart drug is you take the smart drug, you get smart enough to make a better version of a smart drug, you know, and that is the point at which we really take off. That's like the limitless uh, scenario mm-hmm. at the end of the movie. Yeah. Big fan. That was a cool story. So there is a cohort in, I guess, the science and health community that is really into you know health span and lifespan and, and extending uh, what would be the average or possible lifespan for humans. Uh, David Sinclair from Harvard uh, is notable there, and Peter Diamantis um, as well. And there's others, but those are the two I'm familiar with. And so uh, speaking of Ray Kurzweil, so I heard Peter Diamantis talk about an inflection point that he said was maybe 12 years away where the uh, ability to extend lifespan was progressing quicker than people were aging. Uh, And so you could add you know, more life per year than people were aging at, at the same time, which, which is kind of what we're talking about here. But it also, uh, it brings up a bunch of moral and, and philosophical questions around um, the population of the planet, the resources available on the planet, uh, how people will spend their time. Uh, those that, you know, are alive for this period will have been born at a time when it wasn't possible and maybe live through the ability to extend your life, you know, potentially indefinitely. Uh, and so if that is the arc, right, there will be people that were born before it and then people that were born after it and those that are born after it maybe continue <laughs> their lives. And so what do you think about the possibility of like living through that inflection point? Um, and, and how do you see, is there some um, onus on, let's say it's our generation, right? Let's, is there some onus on us to think about it as a moral philosophy too? Well, I have a little bit of a contrarian perspective when it comes to longevity. I actually, so most people really focus on anti-aging for adults. You know, this idea that you're Jeff Bezos and you're going to invest a lot of money and best of luck to him and, you know, discovering a way to extend his lifespan, health span. Um, You know, I, I hope someone figures it out. Sounds great. But my contrarian opinion, though, is that I actually think that the majority of gains in lifespan and health span will actually come from human embryo editing, embryo engineering. Um, Meaning that, you know, there are certain parts of the population that we have found, that we have sampled and studied that tend to live much longer than others. And sometimes they have a few genetic traits in common. And I think we should go try that. Now, this is a very unpopular opinion because it essentially says that, no, it's our children that will benefit from this technology. 
and people are, are very greedy, not that that's a bad thing, and they wanted to work on them. And uh, I keep saying to them, you know what? I don't know how to do that, though. <laughs> what, what we do know how to do, though, is, you know, setting up our future generations for further success. Um, with regards to, you know, an aging population, uh, people living longer, I actually think that it's a great thing. I think we need as many humans as possible. We need billions and billions of people. Soon, human civilization will be 100 billion people. We'll become a spacefaring civilization. We'll colonize the galaxy. We'll be trillions of people, and it'll be great. I think that uh, right now, the, the light of consciousness is uh, too easy to extinguish. Uh, the human brain is marvelous. We need more of it. Yeah, I love the optimism. Well said, yeah. Yeah, especially during these dark days for us in Eastern Europe. <laughs> really like that. You were talking about traits that seem to... Uh, indicate or have a propensity for longevity. There's also a school of thought, and these are probably complementary, that certain lifestyles, and, and so you have these blue zones, right? So Dan Buettner is famous for studying these blue zones. Loma Linda, California is one of them. I think Sardinia is one of them. Uh, Okinawa, uh, I think there's six of them. Uh, and so he looked at what how people live in those places, how they what their communities are like, how they eat, um, and what their spiritual connection is like, what their towns, how their towns and cities are built, et cetera, um, and found certain themes that seem to contribute towards a, a long life. But the one that I find most interesting, and the Japanese have a word for it, is called ikigai, which is this like strong, lifelong bond of community. And so uh, if you're talking about a world where there's trillions of humans, what is the, what is the role of a small tight community in a, such a large population? How do we maintain both? Oh, I think it's just natural that people voluntarily associate and form friendship. I, I, I have no doubt that that will continue. You can't stop people from doing that. Um, and with regards to trillions of people, I do think eventually there will be trillions of people in the far future. Uh, however, I think the carrying um, capacity of the planet is probably going to top out around 100 billion um, if we try hard enough. Uh, I don't really see a way to get a trillion people on Earth, but you know what? I guess I haven't tried yet. Mm. Well, imagine having that many social media followers. <laughs> you oh could monetize that. <laughs> uh, cool. How fast until we're a uh, spacefaring civilization? I don't know. Ask Elon. Uh, I'd rather not. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Not a fan of him these days with all his Bitcoin prognostications. But do you like what he's doing? Uh, I think SpaceX is. Uh, Good company. I, I hope them yeah. the best success on Starship. Yeah. Obviously, Europe is just getting slapped across the face with energy uh, policy. They've made foolish decisions for years, and we don't need to go into all that, but they're way too reliant on cheap Russian oil and gas. That's a fact. And this is all short-term, very short-term stuff. But... Uh, I think it's interesting. Someone like Elon during these times, you know, tweeted like, when it comes to, uh, you know, drastic measures, we should just increase oil and gas, which is in drastic times, drastic measures. Uh, obviously very contrary to the narrative that he's, you know, touting before. But I, I'm quite skeptical actually about solar. My understanding, you know, they can last, you know, like 20 years. Then you got to recycle the panels, uh, weathering. You're probably going to send, panels back you know somewhere in the developing world indonesia or something to break them down toxic not that great actually overall i'm not an expert but that's my understanding my understanding is nuclear is like vastly vastly superior as far as the thumbprint uh, environmentally that it will leave and also 
obviously the duration that you get, the bang for your buck, uh, the sustainability over the long term. Are you into energy mix at all when you think about transhumanism? I think if it's, we're talking like space elevators and satellites going around with no clouds and they could just go around for thousands of years, that would be cool. But if you're in the desert, maybe, but I'm not seeing it. I would say that my, my uh, take on it is that I'm pro-energy, I'm pro-low-cost, cheap, reliable energy, and I think we should be producing as much of it as possible because that's what make the, makes the world go around. Um, there's actually a really interesting book that I could recommend on this subject called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, outlining that uh, uh, fossil fuels are actually uh, pivotal towards encouraging human flourishing. That's what enables society to have done what it has done. Now, yes, there are other forms of energy that we should definitely invest in and explore, but there is a moral case here to be made for like being you know, pro-human, pro-energy, pro-Bitcoin. Yeah. Do you think that it could be that future where we can get Bitcoin mining back down to the local level again, whether it's like your neighborhood nuclear plant or something or appliances even? Do you think that's possible or is that Bitcoin optimism where you can get Bitcoin mining like down to each individual device again? You know, I, I haven't really thought about it, but one of the interesting constraints on it, though, that I think about is really the difficulty of acquiring Bitcoin mining hardware. Uh, with global markets as they are now, it's even worse. But even before the pandemic, it was really hard to get mining equipment. And so I'm still wondering how all these uh, giant mining firms in Texas are getting their equipment. I don't, I don't know what they're doing to get it, but somehow they're getting equipment. I just don't yeah. know how. It's a competitive business for sure. And uh, yeah, listen, Brian, it's fascinating. I could go all day on this. I like how we've gone you know, from deep into the future to, to back again. This is actually really interesting topics. I don't have all the answers, but I've been very... Uh, keen to hear some of your responses. Any other books you would recommend to read about some of the topics that you're interested in, well, be it transhumanism or energy? Well, one other book that I can recommend is called Liberation uh, Biology. And it was, uh, let's see, when was it written? I think it was written in 2003, Ronald Bailey, I think. It was Ronald Bailey. Hey, that's great. Anyway, uh, it's called Liberation Biology, The Scientific and Moral Case for the Biotech Revolution by Ronald Bailey. And uh, you can, you can see a trend here. I'm into moral cases for pro-technology. Um, but this is the moral case for biotechnology. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's another book I can recommend. Okay, very cool. Yeah, great. Listen, would love to chat again in the near future. As we close it here, any, any other links, anything else uh, before we close? Oh, absolutely. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash K-A-N-Z-U-R-E. And webcash can be found at webcash.org. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me on. I had a lot of fun. Thanks, Brian. Great chatting with you, man.